But I've had patients who have LDL cholesterol is over 200, and I will do a calcium score on them, and it's zero. And those people ha have uh, have very low inflammation in their bodies, very low inflammation in their arteries, and because of that, this LDL cholesterol is not causing the damage that it could. And we haven't talked about um, the different kinds of LDL cholesterol, but um, you know, the small, dense LDL part of cholesterol, those are the patients who tend to have metabolic syndrome, high triglycerides, low HDL. Those are the folks who um, whose LDL cholesterol, even though it may not be terribly high, is wreaking havoc uh, in because because they're smaller, they're able to get into the artery walls. They tend to get um, oxidized more quickly and they cause more inflammation and lead to higher oxidized LDL levels too. Um, so yeah, so um, so not all LDL cholesterol is the same, um, and and um, LP little a, by the way is a form of LDL cholesterol. It's got ApoB, which the LDL cholesterol has as a mark for risk, which increases inflammation, but it also has ApoA, which increases clotting. So LP little a has a double whammy in terms of causing uh, accelerated or premature coronary disease. So what's the deal with cholesterol? Is it bad? Is it good? People always ask, how do I lower my cholesterol numbers? Or if it's high, do I need to lower it? Are statins necessary, which is a medication that's used very commonly for lowering cholesterol? And also, how can I lower my cholesterol naturally using lifestyle factors and nutrition? Today's conversation with the integrative and functional cardiologist, Dr. Viral Sheth, takes a closer look at these questions and more helping you to navigate your cardiovascular health with an integrative approach. Dr. Sheth is a leading cardiologist in Maryland with over 30 years of experience in cardiovascular medicine and nuclear cardiology, and he's one of the few integrative cardiologists in the DMV. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health. We have a medical clinic, but it's evolved into a community and one that is focused on community service as well, including with this podcast. This podcast is dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy, but also to understand the root causes of both disease and wellness. And digging deep, deep in these topics means serving our community so that we can be empowered, all of us, to optimize our wellness. This is a really important conversation with Dr. Sheth today. I really enjoyed it about how, how you can approach cholesterol, what, what it actually means, how it's associated with heart health, and what you can do to lower your lower your cholesterol if that's something that is advised this does not replace your medical treatment or going to see your doctor or practitioner but please enjoy and share with your loved ones who may find this helpful welcome Viral, to the podcast we're so glad to have you on today thank you andy it's a pleasure to be on your podcast so let's talk a little about yourself first uh you are a cardiologist in fact one of the the few integrative cardiologist in the area. What drew you to become a cardiologist first? And then um, specifically, what kind of got you into the more integrative functional space? That's a great question. So uh, during my training, um, I saw lots of acute cardiac disease. And at the time, the procedures like bypass surgery, coronary stenting, arrhythmia ablations, they were just really getting started. So I saw lots of acute illness that we could do very little to treat. So I wanted to make a difference in both preventing and treating heart disease, which is still considered the number one killer in this country. Over the past 25 years, um, as a conventional cardiologist, 
the art of treating acute cardiac illness has advanced with technology. But the significant reduction in cardiovascular morbidity and mortality over that time, which has been about 71% decline, which is impressive, although this is increased, it's mostly from better prevention and the use of pharmaceuticals to treat cholesterol, blood pressure, and diabetes. But I became disillusioned with prescribing so many drugs. I was, I was almost feeling like a drug dealer sometimes. So I pursued uh, integrative cardiology and a more holistic approach to prevention by promoting a healthier lifestyle for my patients with mind, body, spirit, and community taken into account. For my primary prevention patients, I also use and recommend nutraceuticals to help achieve prevention goals prior to reaching for pharmaceuticals. I most enjoy the therapeutic encounters with my patients by actively listening with empathy and compassion. I also recognize that a healthy work-life balance is critical to preventing burnout and compassion fatigue. So I practice what I preach by finding time for myself. I try to set an example with proper nutrition, exercise, contemplative practices, and healthy relationships. So that's why I went into integrative cardiology, and that's what I love most about it. Thank you. That's a great answer. It sounds like looking for different tools, but also really understanding intuitively that the mind, body, spirit are connected, and they're all related to heart health, as opposed to just saying, okay, this is cholesterol is high, let's put you on a pill. That could be part of the answer, but certainly not all the answer. Correct. So today we do want to focus on, uh, as you said, uh, cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular health, you know, cardiovascular disease is number one killer, like you said, for both men and women in the United States. Uh, and I would say probably also uh, for a lot of places around the world. Is that is that accurate? How what what is it? I don't know the global, you know, statistics on that. Yeah. So I just recently read that in uh, developing countries, in third world countries, uh cardiovascular death has, if, if not on the top, near the top of the, of, the, of the list in terms of morbidity and mortality. So as people, you know, become more um, industrialized, I guess, uh, the incidence of cardiovascular disease is increasing worldwide, for sure. Yeah. So a lot of times as, as potentially some of the infectious diseases, some of these acute diseases get go down, these other non-communicable chronic diseases like heart disease, et cetera, go, go up. Obesity, especially diabetes, hypertension, they all contribute to, to coronary heart disease. So let's talk about lipids and cardiovascular health. And I think most people, if they've been to a doctor or they've been to a primary care practitioner, they might check a lipid panel as part of their annual checkup. You know, they might check sort of a basic lipid panel. Um, let's talk about what lipids are, you know, why they're so important, and then just kind of basically kind of outline for our listeners why that's so important for cardiovascular health to have a a, a balanced lipid panel. Kind of like first, what, what it is, and then kind of why it's so important. So we order uh, lipid panels, uh, uh, standard lipid panels most often, and they don't necessarily have to be fasting in case, unless the person has had a really high fatty meal the night before. Um, it's not necessary to be fasting. And in the lipid panel, um, we get total cholesterol, we get triglycerides, we get low density lipoprotein, 
concentration and high density lipoprotein concentration. Um, also, um, VLDL is part of that lipid panel, and it's in a it's a key component to um, atherogenic um, lipoprotein. But LDL cholesterol concentration is the focal point for guideline recommendations on lipid lowering therapy. Um, rarely do we actually measure that number um, directly. It's usually uh, inferred through a formula called the free ball equation. That's how we get our LDL cholesterol number in these standard lipid panels. But you can order direct LDL concentrations. You can also order other types of lipid parameters, which we can get into. Now, um, as a conventional cardiologist, um, there is a, um, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology have something, have a, uh, a um, equation that we use to assess 10-year risk for cardiovascular events. That's called the pooled cohort equation. And you can get it on an app and you just, you know, put in the numbers. The problem with that, with that equation is that it's more, um, it's more of a um, population-based uh, 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 data and uh, not really specific for individual patients. And because of that, it can underestimate and sometimes overestimate, especially elderly individuals, their risk of cardiovascular disease. Because of that, because of that knowledge, the uh, ACC came out with tw 11 risk-enhancing um, uh, factors uh, that can uh, help the clinician and the patient decide whether or not they want to be treated aggressively or not in terms of statins, in addition to, of course, lifestyle. And those risk enhancers are family history, uh, metabolic syndrome, um, um, chronic inflammatory conditions like autoimmune disease, post-COVID, um, you know, long COVID, those kinds of things, chronic kidney disease, also, you know, they've also included preeclampsia for women, history of preeclampsia um, and history of diabetes, gestational diabetes as risk enhancers, as well as premature menopause, which I'm glad they did, finally did that. Also, there are high risk ethnic groups, like, for example, you know, um, um, Hispanics, African-Americans, even South Asians that sometimes tend to get um, overlooked. They also included... Uh, elevations in triglycerides above 175, um, as well as elevations in HSCRP or C-reactive protein of greater than 2.0. And APOB, which is the atherogenic um, uh, uh, a, a marker on the surface of these uh, cholesterol particles, which uh, if it's, you can measure directly, and if it's greater than 130, it would also tip you into a higher risk category. Um, and also LP little a, which is a genetic marker. And if that's above 50, that would also tip you into a high risk category. Also, things like ankle brachial index, uh, uh, if it's less than 0.9, is a marker for peripheral arterial disease. And that should also it would potentially uh, uh, bring you from a, you know, an intermediate or moderate risk category into a high risk category. And to define th these risks, you know, uh, if you have a 10 year risk that's less than 5%, that's considered very low risk. If you have a 10 year risk that's between 5 and 7.5, 7 that's considered borderline 7.5 to 20 percent is considered moderate risk and above a 20 percent risk of having a heart event uh in 10 years is considered high risk and then we would treat patients accordingly based on those now sometimes the moderate risk category which is a lot of my patients um and a lot of the patients who are in the same mindset that we are as integrated medicine providers 
would rather not take statins if possible. So what I do often, and we have had discussions about this in the past, I order what's called coronary artery calcium scores. And if that score is above 100, that, should, that puts them definitely into the high-risk category. And in those folks, I would encourage not only lifestyle, but also statin therapy, because um, the, 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 the data is, is quite impressive in terms of uh, if you're able to get someone's LDL down to a certain uh, goal, you can actually cause regression of the calcium and also prevent the calcium from rupturing, which would lead to heart attacks and strokes. What, thank you. Thank you so much, Farrell. What What is the goal for the LDL if someone does have a CAC of greater than 100? What, what are you aiming for there? So so that's a great question. So that is a moving target. Um, so right now, the ACC, the American College of Amer- the United States recommends less than 70. But the European Society of Cardiology has gotten much more aggressive than that. And they're recommending LDL cholesterols of less than 50. And if you've had two events within six months, meaning unstable angina, MI, strokes within two mo- six months, they're recommending LDLs below 40. So they've taken a real aggressive stance to being more, and, and, they, and they, have, they have the data to support it. It's not like this, the point is out of, out of thin air. This is all comers or people with, with moderate risk, well, high risk? Well, well, high risk. High, high risk, risk patients. High yeah. risk, okay. Correct. And, and, and when you have a yeah. calcium score of 100, over 100, to me, you go from intermediate risk to high risk. Yeah. And that's, in that scenario, I would want to be more aggressive. At least get that LDL down below 70. So, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the advanced panels in a minute, but the, the basic panel, which you outlined as total cholesterol, triglycerides, uh, estimated concentration of LDL, and then concentration of HDL. What's the difference first between, uh, LDL and HDL? I know everyone kind of gets confused on that. So, so cholesterol circulates through our blood and in order for it to circulate, it is packaged in these lipoproteins and those lipoproteins can either be uh, low in density, or they can be high in density. So, um, so um, low density cholesterol uh, is made in the liver, and um, it is um, uh, it gets it, and it, and we need cholesterol, by the way, for you know all of our cells to have um, a membrane to maintain mem- membrane integrity. We also need cholesterol for most of our essential uh, hormones. Um, so it's not something that is all bad, clearly. Uh, it's a very, it, it's definitely needed, but sometimes when you have LDL or low density lipoproteins, they, because of their density, they can actually damage the, the walls of our arteries. And because of that, they can enter into the walls and create inflammation, you know, and, uh, and plaque formation and soft plaques, which have a tendency to rupture, which leads to heart attacks and strokes. So because of that, LDL cholesterol is the is the is most is is the target most of the time, and just plenty of data to support by lowering that number, we reduce endothelial dysfunction, reduce endothelial inflammation, oxidative stress, etc. High density lipoprotein is also made in the liver, but uh, it's more of a marker for risk than a target for intervention. We know that in the past they've tried to raise HDL, and they have with drugs by over 90% rise in HDL. But, but by doing that, they actually increase cardiovascular event rates. So, so the best way to raise HDL is with exercise. Um, but if you have very low HDL and high triglycerides, that's a marker for risk. 
And, and those patients, believe it or not, you want to be aggressive by treating their LDL because we, we, you'll, you'll see improved outcomes by getting their LDL down lower than by specifically treating the HDL. There was a specific study that that came out recently about how actually a high HDL was not associated with, I believe, uh, like beneficial outcomes. I know we always say that, you know, HDL is a good cholesterol. It helps recycle the LDL. But I know there was some recent study, I forget the paper now, but there was a specific study that was saying, okay, HDL is not the, you know, the savior that we thought it would be in terms of and, and, and remember, HDL can be functional HDL and dysfunctional HDL. So if you have a lot of dysfunctional HDL, you're not doing anybody any favors by raising it. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and, and let's, how do we measure dysfunctional HDL or how do we, you know, get it more functional? So, so I'm not aware of any specific testing for dysfunctional HDL. All I know is from studies where they tried to raise HDL with medications that they realize that they're raising the wrong kind of HDL. Mm-hmm. But in my experience, you know, healthy living is what's going to raise your functional HDL. You don't really measure it. You just um, you just realize that you're at risk and you take the appropriate lifestyle uh, changes. We are taping this during the holiday season, so I think it's appropriate to uh, to talk about the alcohol question now. Uh, you know, we, we I think, uh, have always been taught uh, when we were students, I think, too, as as you know, for the HDL, oh, like drink some alcohol because that's going to help the HDL. Where's the cardiology community on that? So right that's now? a great that's a great question, and and, and we've seen um, alcohol uh, excess raise HDL, but my argument is it's probably dysfunctional HDL because people who drink alcohol in excess more than you know one to two servings a day have a higher cardiovascular event rate. And actually, there's been some recent data to show that even drinking one or two servings of alcohol a day increases your risk. So that's kind of controversial for me to say that. But um, I'm a firm believer that if you don't drink alcohol, I don't recommend starting drinking. And if you do drink, and if you're a woman, guidelines are no more than one serving a day. And if you're a man, no more than two servings a day. And the type of alcohol I recommend typically is um, the Pinot Noir uh, red wine, because it has higher resveratrol, which is the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory beneficial effects of alcohol, at least in in uh, in theory. All right. Thank you so much. And the other aspect of the basic lipid panel is that triglycerides. What's the difference between, say, like cholesterol and, and triglycerides? Why is triglycerides important? Is one more important than another? So triglycerides are uh, made in the liver, just like LDL cholesterol. Triglycerides... Um, are an independent risk factor for cardiovascular events. There's no question about it. And treating triglycerides um, has been in the past a bit um, um, uh, unsatisfying because um, the drugs that we had in the past to treat triglycerides never really um, showed improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. So the best way to lower triglycerides, in my opinion, is lifestyle. So that means a diet that's low in carbohydrates, that means exercise, that means losing weight. Also looking for secondary causes of high triglycerides, such as you know things like hypothyroidism and um, um, you know, chronic kidney disease, uh, you know, diabetes, obesity, cigarette smoking. Um, these are all secondary causes of high triglycerides. Also drugs like thiazide diuretics, um, you know, uh, estrogen, um, steroids. 
they can all raise your triglycerides. Triglycerides um, uh, can actually enter into the endothelium of vascular of blood vessels and lead to atherosclerotic plaque formation. So it's good to have lower triglycerides. Now, um, there, um, there, so phenofibrates have been uh, historically used to treat high triglycerides, but the outcomes uh, data studies never uh, proved them to be helpful in reducing uh, uh, event rates. They did lower triglycerides, but not event rates. The only, the only um, subset that there was benefit is in those patients who had diabetes um, or who had metabolic syndrome. Those people tended to do better with fibrates. Um, there was a recent study though, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It was called the, um, uh, it was a, the reduce it trial. So that was a study that looked at a specific form of fish oil called EPA or icosapental ethyl. And this at two grams twice a day, and this was in patients who either had established cardiovascular disease or diabetes and one additional risk factor. What they found that there was a significant reduction in endpoints in terms of non-fatal MI, stroke. Um, so there were there were there were reductions in major uh, coronary events with this drug on top of maximally treated um, you know statins, which you would use in this high risk uh, category. Now the problem was that the the event rates weren't related to the lowering of triglycerides, so it was independent of the triglyceride level before and after treatment. So they're thinking that the breakdown products of EPA have other beneficial uh, 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 beneficial um, uh, uh, effects, such as resolving inflammation through anti interleukin ten or improving endothelial function uh, and reducing um, you know oxidative stress. And also reducing, um, 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 uh, well, yeah, I'm reducing oxidative stress. So, uh, so I'll I'll leave it at that. I, I, we're going to get into nutraceuticals later, but I just have a piggy, piggyback on that on that reduce the trial. So uh, I think you said reduce the trial. If you have a patient that's asking you about the pharmaceutical version of fish oil, based on that versus a supplemental form of fish oil where do you see that balance, you know, happening is one better than another there? Yeah. So if your triglycerides are greater than 150, right. And, and you've had an event or you have diabetes, the, the, the pharmaceutical EPA, uh, and, and I think the Vasipa is the brand name for it mm -hmm. is clearly has, uh, has clear outcomes data to support its use above the over-the-counter fish oil. The over-the-counter fish oil is a combination of EPA and DHA. And the, DH, the DHA piece may uh, increase risk, believe it or not. And mm -hmm. the EPA, and so it's kind of like it's a wash. So there really haven't been any major trials or studies to show improvement in outcomes with just over-the-counter fish oil when it's combined EPA and DHA. I know DHA is used also for brain health quite a bit, okay. and and there's that combination often that happens with EPA DHA, but but EPA does seem to have more of an anti-inflammatory effect. That seems to be a little bit more of the difference there. Thank you, and um, we can talk about genetics a bit too, because um, I know for us we see a lot of people that come in and say, oh my dad had high cholesterol, my mom or my siblings have high cholesterol, so I also have high cholesterol. Sure. How much of a role does genetics play in cholesterol sure. numbers and influence? So, so the two, so the two big diagnoses for genetics and cholesterol that are commonly seen, one is uh, some type of familial hypercholesterolemia, whether it's homozygous, 
and their LDLs are between, um, you know, uh, between 300 and 500 or, or 200 and 500. Or actually, I take that back. Um, homozygous, I take that back. Homozygous people have LDLs between 500 and 1,000. Those people are high risk for having early onset of cardiovascular disease, you know, patients in their 20s having MIs. That's mm -hmm. very uncommon. More common is heterozygous familial. And these are the people who have LDL cholesterols between, you know, 200 and 500. And those people are also considered higher risk. And you know, the guidelines do recommend statin therapy for people who have LDL cholesterols greater than 190. That tends to be a genetic uh, predisposition uh, more than anything else, whether it has to do with, you know, mutations on PCSK9 gene or APOB, it's, it's unclear, but, but there definitely, there's a genetic component there and it puts them at higher risk. The other, the other um, factor that's genetic is LP little a. So LP little a clearly is only genetically uh, transmitted and lifestyle does very little to lower LP little a. Um, and um, drugs are not very effective right now, at least the ones that are on the market. The only one that's possibly effective is PCSK9 inhibitors, which are those injectable uh, treatments for cholesterol. PCSK9 inhibitors work by um, preventing the breakdown of LDL receptors on the liver. So they tend to, you know, uptake the LDL cholesterol. So, and then they're quite effective. They can lower, lower LDL by almost 50% or more. Uh, but they've also been shown to lower LP little a to a certain extent. There are other trials that have just completed phase two, looking at what we call antisense oligonucleotide technology. And with that technology, they've been able they've been able to show over ninety percent reductions in LP little a. Now, phase three trials are ongoing to see if that reduction actually reduces event rates. Because we've been fooled by you know raising HDL thinking it make a difference, it doesn't, or lowering triglycerides significantly thinking it makes a difference, and it really doesn't. So we need to see outcomes data before something like that gets FDA approval. Yes. So yeah, those are two main genetic uh, diagnoses for. Um, for cholesterol, yeah. How how common are these genetic um, components? Whether it's a uh, hyperlipidemia with the LDL, you know, say over two hundred without doing anything, or or a LP little a lipoprotein A being high. How common are these things? How often do you see these in your practice? So, so the incidence. Well, I'm a cardiologist, so I probably see um, just from experience maybe ten percent of my patients have elevated LP little a, and probably less than that have heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. So they're not very common. You know, hyperlipidemia is, um, heart disease is multifactorial. Cholesterol is one component. Uh, but, you know, other things can cause inflammation and, you know, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, smoking, excessive alcohol. I mean, all those things contribute together. Um, but in terms of genetics um, and, and cholesterol and risk, LPLA and heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia are probably the most common. It sounds like too that cholesterol is, if if I'm saying this right, necessary but not sufficient for the development of heart disease. You can have someone with cholesterol that is high, but let's say they say their family never had heart disease or something, but they have high cholesterol. So what kind of pointing back to what you said earlier, that cholesterol is a parent hormone for the adrenal hormones, for the sex hormones, it's a major component of the cell membrane. So it's it's an essential building block for our cells and our bodies, but yet it can, in the setting of an inflammatory environment, lead sure. to vascular inflammation and ethyl dysfunction. 
So I've had patients who have LDL cholesterol is over 200 and I will do a calcium score on them and it's zero. Yeah. And those people ha have, uh, have very low inflammation in their bodies, very low inflammation in their arteries. And because of that, this LDL cholesterol is not causing the damage that it could. Um, yeah. So even, and we haven't talked about, um, the different kinds of LDL cholesterol, but, um, you know, the small, dense LDL part of cholesterol, those are the patients who tend to have metabolic syndrome, high triglycerides, low HDL. Those are the folks who um, whose LDL cholesterol, even though it may not be terribly high, is wreaking havoc uh, in because because they're smaller, they're able to get into the artery walls. They tend to get um, oxidized more quickly and they cause more inflammation and lead to higher oxidized LDL levels too. Um so yeah, so um, so not all LDL cholesterol is the same, um, and and um, LP little a, by the way is a form of LDL cholesterol. It's got ApoB, which LDL cholesterol has as a mark for risk, which increases inflammation, but it also has ApoA, which increases clotting. So LP little a has a double whammy in terms of causing uh, accelerated or premature coronary disease. Great, I. I think there's a bunch of questions that are being generated from your answers. So uh, I will say that um, for the LP little a, have you found anything that has been shown to lower LP little a so, is so, one so, question. Yep. So as I mentioned, uh, the injectables that are on the market now will reduce LP little a by about 25%. But the newer drugs that are in phase three trial can reduce LDL by over 90%. Now, there is one nutraceutical called berberine which has a mechanism of action similar to P PCSK9 inhibitors. And there is some, some data there to show it can lower your cholesterol using that mechanism. Not so much about LP little a, but that would be potentially something that's, you know, benign and natural, a natural you know, uh, agent that you could start. All right. So we talked a bit about cholesterol and, and triglycerides and why they're so important in terms of measuring them for heart heart disease uh, risk. We talked about some calcium, coronary artery calcium scores, as well as kind of, uh, you know, different markers for maybe looking at cholesterol on a deeper level. You mentioned a uh, lipoprotein A. Um, what are some of the other kind of advanced markers you might do on an advanced lipid panel that, you know, if your patient wants to see like sure. a deeper dive into this? So, so the most important predictor of events in advanced lipid panel is not the density of LDL, or, um, but, but the particle number. So LDL particle number um, takes uh, into account um, both, um, you know, dense LDL and large fluffy LDL. If, you're, if your particle number is below a thousand, it doesn't really matter what the dense LDL is or the, or, because you've gotten it low enough that you're not gonna, you, you're gonna reduce event rates. So. Particle LDL particle number out of all the advanced lipid panel markers is probably the most important. That doesn't mean you don't look at LDL density um, uh, as well. Um, also, things like ApoB and non-HDL are also important in those folks who have, um, you know, the atherogenic milieu of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Those are also, but the treatment is same: lowering the LDL first, lowering the LDL particle number first to below a thousand. Do you ever look at uh, CRP or homocysteine or fibrinogen, any of those? 
So CRP is, remember I mentioned, it's one of the um, risk enhancers. Yeah. So if it is above two, um, but the only treatment for LDL CRP is to lower the LDL. So, um, but there is there's plenty of data to show high CRP for independent markers for uh, cardiac event rates. Uh, there was a guy named Ritker who was really did a lot of publishing on that. And um, but but statins are the go-to drug for elevated CRP in addition to a healthy lifestyle. Um, homocysteine I don't measure because there's no data to show that treating it makes a difference, at least in terms of cardiovascular event rates. Um, I haven't been measuring fibrinogen levels. Let's talk about, thank you. Let's talk about statins now. So that is the most widely prescribed medication for yeah. cholesterol, I believe. What are the pros? What are the cons of, of statins? Sure. Yes. So, so the pros of statins are, are really overwhelming in terms of clinical trials. Now, that those many of those clinical trials are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And sometimes they fudge the numbers. You know, they tell you that there's, you know, a, uh, you know, 30% reduction, but they don't tell you it's, they, they're talking about absolute, they're talking about relative risk reduction, whereas the absolute risk reduction is really one or 2%. And that type of fudging of the data, I think has left a lot of people feeling very skeptical of these trials and of the pharmaceutical industry in general. Um, but I will tell you, though, for those folks who are at higher risk, statins have been shown to be very effective in prolonging life. There's really no question there. Now, in terms of side effects, right, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, um, a, a, a condition called the nocebo effect. I'm sure you've heard of that. If somebody goes into uh, uh, treatment thinking that they're going to have a side effect, they're much more likely to have the statin-induced side effect, which is myalgias. So it's all about, you know, speaking with the patient, doing, um, you know, um, shared decision-making and and reinforcing the benefits, but not so much the bad, uh, the side effects. And that can have a real impact on uh, the side effects of statins. Now, some of the other things uh, we can do if someone has side effects is we can hold the drug and reintroduce it at a lower dose Maybe instead of every day, you know, three days a week, we can try a different drug. Um, we can try a non-statin, for example, medicines like the PCSK9 inhibitors if they're at high risk, or just ezetimibe if they're not at high risk, which is doesn't have the same side effect profile as statins do. Um, so, so yeah, so so statins. The other concern people have is the risk of diabetes with statins, right? So there is there is there is data to show that high dose statins can increase the risk of developing type two diabetes by about I don't know about a, by about a month or two, and people who are at, who are at risk with metabolic syndrome and prediabetes. But what that tells me is that these people are already going to be developing diabetes eventually uh, over the next you know month or two. So the benefits of taking a statin if you have diabetes far outweighs the risk of developing diabetes. Um, in those folks. The other concern people have is with, um, you know, you know, cognition. Um, and the data with cognition is really very, very um, uh, uh, tenuous. There's really no hard data to show that statins reduce, uh, that lead to premature dementia or anything like that, especially at lower doses, statins just don't do that. So I have two follow-up questions with that. One is about CoQ10 and the other is about, about getting off statin. So let's talk about the CoQ10 for a second. I've, I heard in the past anyway, that 
in Europe, sometimes they'll package the statin with a CoQ10 uh, sure. supplement, a nutraceutical. Uh, we know that um, statins will um, inhibit HMG reductase, which also would uh, produce CoQ10. So there's always a potential uh, concurrent reduction in coenzyme Q10. Where are you with, um, I, I know different people have different opinions on this, but where are you with CoQ10 and, and do you prescribe that to all your patients that are on statins? So that's, or, a, great, or dependent? that's a great question. So CoQ10 is a ubiquitous molecule in our body. Um, it's mostly found in the heart, in the myocardium. And um, a lower CoQ10, well, CoQ10 does lots of things. It's an anti-inflammatory, it's an antioxidant, it improves endothelial function, endothelial health. Um, but it can be depleted in people who have congestive heart failure or who were on statins in particular. And because of that, there is some anecdotal data to suggest being su supplementing CoQ10, maybe 200 milligrams a day, uh, will help prevent um, you know, the side effects of statins, myalgias, et cetera. Um, and also the other benefits we talked about in terms of improving heart health. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of CoQ10 and I, it's on my vitamin sheet. Um, I think it's the second one on my vitamin sheet. And it's one of those things that I think there is really very little downside and tremendous upside. So a ubiquinone or ubiquinol, depending on the form, it sound, I didn't realize that it was named because it was a, it's a ubiquitous molecule <laughs> in, the, in the body. I guess it's whoever scientists named that. Sure. Um, uh, and, the other question you had was yeah. about... Um, well, statin. So, you yeah. know, hey, doctor, if I'm on a statin, can I get, ever get, get off that statin? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, if somebody is at high risk, they've had an event, if it's secondary prevention, or if the calcium score is over 100... I would say no, and I would say hopefully you'll be on that statin for the next 50 years because that's how long you live if you keep taking the statin. Mm -hmm. But if you're at intermediate risk and you can change your lifestyle, you can, you know, nutrition, we haven't talked about nutrition, but- Yeah, let's you know, talk about that. So the, you know, like a Mediterranean diet lowers LDL cholesterol. Any, any type of diet that's plant-based will lower your LDL cholesterol. Exercise, tremendous impact. On lowering LDL cholesterol, um, yeah, I mean, and you know, um, you stay away from you know sweets and starches and saturated fats, red meat, cheese, fried foods. They all lower your LDL cholesterol. So, a lifestyle change can have a dramatic impact on LDL cholesterol. And in that scenario, we could potentially stop taking or reduce the dose of a statin in somebody who's at intermediate risk. Not, they don't necessarily need to be on a statin for the rest of their life. That's good. That's good to know. Good, give people hope too. Um, so there is, it sounds like a big nutritional connection, big exercise connection to lipids and cardiovascular disease. Would you say that one of the root causes of high cholesterol would be more of an inflammatory lifestyle nutrition? And by reversing that and flipping that onto like a Mediterranean or anti-inflammatory plant forward type of diet, you would have lower cholesterol by getting to the root cause of that? Absolutely. So the, the SAD diet, you know, the standard American diet is the exact inflammatory diet that you're talking about. You know, a lot of processed foods, a lot of, you know, refined sugars, saturated fats, cholesterol, with very little in terms of, you know, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes. That standard American diet is definitely pro-inflammatory and increases cardiovascular risk. I think we've done a good job with educating patients on that. And I think people are more inclined to go with a plant-based diet. There are all kinds of plant-based diets out there. There's 
know, the Mediterranean diet, which has outcomes benefit data, it, it, it was, you know, it's, it's prospective, it wasn't a randomized trial, but there is uh, reductions in cardiovascular event rates with um, the Mediterranean diet. Uh, there's also the DASH diet, which is also similar, but it also lowers blood pressure because it's a very low sodium diet. There's also, um, you know, um, there's the, um, there's the, you know, the, the, the vegan diet, right? So that is um, also a, a plant-based diet. It's more extreme, um, but it's also thought to be better for the environment. So, um, you know, you can pick and choose which plant-based diet, as long as it's plant-based, I'm okay with it. You're not a, doesn't sound like you're a big proponent of the carnivore diet for yeah, cholesterol reduction. Well, let's let's talk about um, uh, keto, right? Yeah, sure. So, so keto, um, so for me, the keto diet has really one benefit, and that's weight loss in six for the first six months. Um, some, some people, for the, because of genetic markers, can have their LDL cholesterol climb above two hundred on a keto diet. Not everybody. So you need those people need to be monitored, especially people who have diabetes. You want to be monitoring them as well because they're really doing very low. They can become hypoglycemic, that, that type of thing. So keto is not for everyone. Keto can have some improvements in cholesterol early on, but it's such a hard diet to maintain long term. Um, that um, yeah. So for me, keto is good for weight loss in the first six months, but after that, you should transition to a more plant based diet. Right, because otherwise, keto plus high carbs, which will creep back in equals sad, right? Then it just becomes a sad diet again. Exactly. Basically <laughs> trying to think of another acronym for glad diet, but I'll kind of think of that <laughs> next time. Um, what are some nutritional superstars? Cause just to get more practical about it for listeners, like what, what foods do you like for lowering cholesterol? Like if you, if they said, Hey, Dr. Chef, I'm going out to the grocery store, what should I buy at the grocery store? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, the, I think the key is going to the grocery store. And oh, oh, so just going, <laughs> just, just going, going to the grocery store yeah, first. Yeah. don't do that anymore. And that, now, you <laughs> yeah, know, it's yeah. funny, my wife is ordering groceries online. I'm like, wait a second. I thought the whole point of going <laughs> to a grocery store is actually picking the, the, the vegetables and the fruits that you think are, you know, are organic and that have the, you know, that are fresh, et cetera. And I, so I think going to the grocery store is, is so important. And I think actually picking out, um, you know, colorful fruits and vegetables um, is, is very important. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and whole grains, you know, unless you're, uh, you, know, so you have a, a sensitivity to gluten, whole grains are very helpful as are, um, as are, you know, beans and legumes also very helpful in terms of managing, um, your cholesterol, you know, stay, you know, cheese is the biggest culprit when it comes to increasing our cholesterol. So that's something I try to focus on with our patients is to cut back on the amount of cheese that they're taking. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that because they'll eat like a kale salad, but then they'll put like tons of cheese on it or something or yeah. broccoli with a bunch of cheese. Goat yeah. cheese or whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think going to a good nutritionist is also a good place to go if you want to really focus on diet in terms of specifics of growth to going to the grocery store. What do they say? If you go to a grocery store, you should, all the healthy foods are on the sides or on the back. In the middle are all the processed foods. You want to stay out in the middle of a grocery store and just walk around the outsides. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, that's really good advice. And uh, definitely seeing a nutritionist. Um, big shout out to our amazing nutrition team here at our clinic. But um, I, and you, um, for you, like, do you? Um, so I, think... I do want to mention one other type of diet. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's called the caloric restriction diet that, that are out there now. 
So there's um, intermittent fasting, uh, yes, um, yes, which um, which I think, um, along with fasting mimicking, mimicking diets, um, have been shown to reduce um, you know, blood pressure, BMI, total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and C-reactive proteins. The exact mechanisms are unclear. Probably has to do with you know, you know, resting your gut, improving the flora in your gut, reducing TMAO, which is a marker for which gets absorbed, increases cardiovascular risk. So I, it's not for everybody, but for the motivated person, like, you know, for example, myself, I've been doing, and I think we had this conversation before, yeah. I've been doing this intermittent fasting for about five years now, and I, I lost 20 pounds and maintained that weight loss. And just to give you something anecdotal about that, about 10 years ago, I had a calcium score done and it was zero. Five years ago, it went up to 15 so at that point is when I started this intermittent fasting. And I recently did a calcium score about a month ago, and it's down to one. So there's there's definitely proof in the pudding in terms of uh, you know different diets and, and caloric restriction as improving cardiovascular health, at least for me, but there's also other data out there. Nice. Well, it's nice to have the data as a trial, but it's nice to have the personal experience too. So that, that's really great. Are you still doing the one meal a day or are you I, doing- I am. So I, I've gotten quite aggressive with that. I'm unable to because I, I, I drink fluids during the day, you know, zero calorie mm-hmm. fluids during the day. Most people do, you know, eight hours between noon and eight where they eat. And, you know, the other times they don't eat, you know, then they eat a healthy, healthy calories, obviously, but right. two meals a day is typically- right. And and also just as a disclaimer for those listening, it's not like more intermittent fasting is necessarily better. It's not like one size fits all. It depends on each person in terms of how much they're able to tolerate. You know, how are their adrenals working? Are you stressed out? You know, things like that. Exactly. So a lot of a lot of things happening. How's people sleep? But um, that's that's really great. I also wonder about you know cholesterol being lowered from a lower carb diet from uh, increasing insulin sensitivity. You know, there's some some mechanism for for insulin being lowered and then sometimes that will lower cholesterol too. Yes, no, absolutely. So um, improving in, uh, insulin sensitivity um, can definitely reduce inflammation. And by reducing inflammation, you're going to re- reduce cardiovascular event rates. So, and, you know, um, um, you know reducing your carbohydrates will um, also help with weight loss and help with trunkal obesity, which are all signs of insulin resistance. So improving insulin sensitivity with lifestyles is really important by cutting back on carbs, absolutely. Um, there, are, um, there, are, you know, there are drugs on the market that do that also. Um, but, and, and I wanted to mention, since we did to talk about low carbs and maybe diabetes, there's two um, um, agents on the market now, anti-diabetic meds that have been shown to actually reduce cardiovascular event rates. One is um, um, uh, GLP-1 uh, 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 Victoza, and the other one is um, a Jardians, which is an SGLT2 inhibitor. So both of those have been proven to reduce both heart failure and major adverse cardiovascular events. So, you know, in addition to metformin. So those are the three go-to agents that I usually recommend to my patients who have insulin resistance, diabetes, et cetera. Nice. Yeah. Metformin makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, also let's talk about supplements and I, I think I want to get back to exercise too, but let's talk about supplements, nutraceuticals as well. Um, are there any specific nutraceuticals that you would think about for cholesterol? Do you add them onto a statin? Do you use them instead of a statin? Sure. 
So, you know, as I mentioned in my 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 opening statement that I for people who are at low to moderate risk, I really want to focus on lifestyle and then nutraceuticals. And then if we're still not able to get to agreed upon goals, then we can consider pharmaceuticals. So the the, the lifestyle piece, I think we've talked about the diet, the exercise. Um, but by the way, exercise is important. The guidelines are between um, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week, or which you know, which is like walking at a, at a brisk pace, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous exercise, like running or playing singles tennis, et cetera, uh, you know, a week uh, will help, will, are the guidelines will help reduce um, your cholesterol as well as improve all the other parameters, parameters including inflammation. Um, but in terms of pharmaceuticals, so, so um, one of my, uh, if someone has, let's say a calcium score of, you know, between zero and hundred, right? So they're at that, you know, low to moderate risk. So those folks, I will, in addition to lifestyle, recommend, um, uh, you know, fermented garlic. So fermented garlic has uh, all kinds of benefits. It does lower your cholesterol, it reduces inflammation, and it's also an antiplatelet agent and lowers blood pressure. So, and and also it's been shown to reduce calcification of the corners. I mean, there's real science to show that. And that's typically, you know, 600 milligrams twice a day of the Kyolic brand, which I recommend. It comes from Japan and that's where the science, that's where the data uh, comes from. Also, um, you know, um, we talked about um, berberine. Berberine has uh, efficacy in lowering cholesterol as well as blood sugar and blood pressure. Very mild. Typically, we add that on to pharmaceuticals to help people get the goal. Um, red yeast rice. So red yeast rice is a statin derivative. You know, my experience with red yeast rice has not been good in terms of efficacy for lowering LDL cholesterol, maybe because it's not FDA approved. Maybe we don't, we don't, I mean, it comes from, it's a Chinese herb. So maybe it's not as pure as we think it might be. So I have not had great um, success um, with lowering LDL cholesterol. Uh, what about vitamin K2? Anything yes. there? Yeah. So vitamin K2, and by, by the way, in terms of my personal use of nutraceuticals, so I do take vitamin D K2 in combination. I also take magnesium every day to lower inflammation and, and blood pressure. Yeah. So there is there's there's there is science with K2 and the reduction of calcification in the coronaries. So yeah, so maybe one well, that's one of the reasons my calcium score went from 15 to 1 is I was taking K2. I mean, I don't know for sure, but probably contributed to that plus getting on the intermittent fasting yeah. train it sounds like. Um any other lifestyle recommendations? You know, all of this can be very stressful for someone to listen to like what should I eat and how much should I exercise and you know, what's my What's my you know, CAC score? What's my cholesterol? What do you recommend for uh, lifestyle in terms of uh, stress reduction? Because we know that that's so, a big yeah. factor. So that's huge. You know, um, you know, work-life balance is one of my go-to things now. It wasn't, it wasn't like that before I was a workaholic. I mean, being a being a balanced for work life as a cardiologist is amazing for one. Yeah, thing. and and it's and it's yeah. not easy to get to. Doctor, trust yeah. me. And I remember working like crazy hours and. The first day of my you know, vacation, which was like basically two weeks a year, I would get sick because my cortisol levels would drop because I'm not so stressed. And then my and then it was just yeah, it was it was just it was a, not a healthy way to live. So yeah, so managing stress, I'm me personally, I'm big into contemplative exercises. So I do a lot of uh, mindfulness um, meditation. I do I meditate um, at least between thirty to thirty minutes to an hour a day, depending on 
how much time I have. Um, I also um, do walking meditation or when I'm on my elliptical, I'm quieting my mind and I'm able to, um, and that, that, that just the fact that you're able to quiet your mind, it, it helps in terms of managing the day-to-day stresses that happen so that, so that you're able to actually recognize those thoughts and emotions. And by recognizing them, you're able to uh, let them go through you and they don't sit with you and they don't lead to higher cortisol levels and you know epinephrine levels and so there's so that's so there's that uh aspect there's also something called mindfulness-based stress reduction which is actually a a seminar or course that you can take um i think it was developed by um what's his name again dr kabat-zen at uh yes, mass amherst yes. yes yes exactly and again not it's you know it's, it's not supposed to be spiritual but for me it is a very spiritual experience and I think that makes a big difference in my outlook on life and how I manage the stressors in my life. I'm able to take them more in stride without uh, without it overwhelming me like it used to do. That was my first foray into um, meditation was taking an MBSR class offered at the hospital, like a free class for employees. That was really nice doing that eight week course. And I, I noticed a big difference with that. And I'm still trying to do meditation. Um, but that's that's really that's really great because you can't really necessarily control the events of the day, but you can influence how you respond to them. And, and meditation mindfulness is a big part of that. Exactly. Um, what is one thing you wish everyone knew, uh, Dr. Sheth, about cardiovascular health in general? I know this is kind of a very yes. broad question. Yes. I just want to say that that was a very good question. Um, that that, that the, Actually, the American College of Cardiology and uh, the American Heart Association came out with this statement. And that is, 80 to 90% of all cardiac cardiovascular events can be reduced by achieving healthy lifestyle goals. And for the rest of the 10 to 20% will, will require pharmaceuticals, specifically to genetic uh, um, risks that we talked about. So that's quite an, uh, uh, an unbelievable statement to, to come out of a society, you know, one of the cardiology societies or, or the two main cardiology societies. And what that tells me is that clearly as providers, you know, we could do a better job with educating our patients. Um, and clearly, you know, society in general has to also take the lead and, and you know, encourage healthy lifestyle. And, you know, I always tell them, I always say to my patients, my goal is if you, if you ever see me in the office, I never want to see you in an emergency room with an acute coronary condition, because uh, that's my goal. And and the way you achieve that goal is a combination of healthy living and and necessary pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so great. I'm glad that that they the society made that statement. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shess, so much for coming on today. It's been a very informative and fun uh, talk with you, talking about cholesterol and heart health. Uh, one closing question we have is, what is one thing under $20 that you think has changed your health for the better? I know you talked about a, a, a couple of things already, but uh, what's kind of one fairly so, inexpensive uh, practical thing? Is that, that is that a one-time spend or is that a daily spend? <laughs> <laughs> um, it could be either, whatever. It's your choice. It's your so, choice. So for a, a, a daily spend, I would say... Um, Maybe getting um, becoming a getting a gym membership, okay. um, or the other option is to walk to your local farmers market or grocery store and spend that twenty dollars on on you know fresh on whole foods. Um, and um, 
So yeah. the benefit of walking to to the grocery store or the farmers market, and and the twenty dollars spent on uh, but that this is actually one of the more difficult questions I I was looking at. I wasn't really because twenty dollars <laughs> is not much. The other thing I thought about was getting a, a buying a baseball cap because you know a baseball <laughs> cap is something that I need I use all the time and I usually buy it when I go to places you know you know exotic places or you know uh, etc or, or to tennis um, tennis tournaments etc and um, you know keeps the sun on your eyes but also um, reminds you that you need to exercise at least for me so okay the baseball cap is that that um, trigger in your brain to say go yes. and exercise. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for all for coming on today, Dr. Sheth. Um, how can listeners learn more about you and work with you? We know you're uh, local here in the DMV area. Yeah. So if you go to the Cardio Care website, um, you can, you know, make an appointment to come see me. Um, you know, um, it's easy to do. Um, Cardiocare.com. Is that right? Cardiocare.com. Yes. Dot com. Okay. And, and we, have, you- we have offices in, I see patients in Chevy Chase, in Germantown and in Rockville. Okay. And do you do telehealth that we're still recording this during the pandemic? How does that work? Yeah, I do. Uh, So, you know, I I send you a Zoom link and we do a telehealth visit. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Talk soon. Thank you so much, Andy. Take care. Thanks for having me too. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.